We're going to be looking this morning as we continue our trek through the book of Kings. We'll be finishing the balance of 2 Kings 11. We're reading from verse 4 to verse 21, which is again the balance of the chapter. Coming off of the saving of Joash and thus the preservation of God's promise, now we jump ahead a few years as we'll see into the coming of Joash to his rightful place on David's throne. Before we read from 2 Kings 11, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we feel in our hearts that we are, as we've just sung, prone to wander. And yet we recognize as well that you are inclined to come and bring us back from our wanderings. Like the good shepherd who left behind the 99 to seek the one, so you have left behind many things to come and retrieve us out of our rebellion. And so we come to your word, which you use to fence us in, which you use to protect us even from ourselves. We come humbly and in a spirit of anticipation, expecting that you will use your word to build your church this day, that you will anoint us with your spirit, that the same spirit who inspired these words might also open our hearts to receive them in the spirit they were given. And so we recognize ourselves to be in need of help, and we ask for it. You are the only one who can give it, and we trust that you will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings 11, starting in verse 4. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of units of a hundred, the Karaites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. Then he showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is what you are to do. You who are in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the sewer gate, and a third at the gate behind the guard who take turns guarding the temple, and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty are all to guard the temple for the king. Station yourselves around the king, each man with his weapon in his hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. The commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada the priest. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to King David and that were in the temple of the Lord. The guards, each with his weapon in his hand, stationed themselves around the king near the altar and the temple from the south side to the north side of the temple. Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada the priest ordered the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops Bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said she must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. 
So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses entered the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and all the people. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne, and all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet, because Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the palace. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. The, the affairs of royalty are oftentimes very hard to keep track of, especially their family affairs. You have one king who marries off his son to the daughter of another king that these two kings might together fight against a, a third king entirely. And if you look at the kings, David and Solomon and some of the others, they have multiple wives, even scores of wives in some instances, and, and scores of children by different wives, and this, this child kills that one, and this one is jealous of that one, and so it, it's difficult to keep track of all the different comings and goings of the various kings, and this is really no exception as the, the background to the passage here helps us to make light of what is happening, or to have light on what is happening in our text for this morning. And again, the, the whole drama in the passage here has its roots or, or springs from a very bad decision by an otherwise good king, King Jehoshaphat, who typically trusted the Lord, but in one case in his foreign policy thought that he knew better than the Lord knew. And so he married his son, King Joram, future King Joram, who was the crown prince, off to the daughter of wicked king Ahab, Athaliah, in order that they could bring themselves together and fight against a different king together. In the course of time, Joram dies, and he and Athaliah had had a, a son named Ahaziah, and Ahaziah in the course of time dies as well because he had gone off to visit his in-laws at the wrong time when Jehu was putting his in-laws to death that he might be king. Ahaziah is put to death as well. And this leads to a power vacuum as we looked at last week. And Athaliah, Ahab's daughter and the mother of Ahaziah, decides that she would like to be queen. And so she begins to put all of Ahaziah's sons to death. They were all quite young. She decides to put all of Ahaziah's sons to death. Ahaziah's sons also, very disgustingly, being her grandsons. And so she puts them all to death in order to consolidate power. And as she's going about the work of, of putting the sons, uh, putting the sons of her own son to death, we see that lying behind that, the promise of God to David hangs by a thread. Because God had promised him that he would always have a son of his own body, of his own line, who would sit on his throne. And in this case, now there is to be no son to sit on the throne if all of Ahaziah's sons are put to death. But one son survives. One son is spared. Little Joash is taken by his aunt 
and avoids the slaughter. She hides him in a side room of the temple, and there he continues for six years. And Athaliah was very, very, it was very unlikely that she was going to find Joash in the temple for two reasons. One, she didn't know he was missing. Talk about a bad grandma moment. You don't even know that one of your grandsons is missing as all the rest of their bodies are being piled up. You don't even know them all to know that you didn't get all of them, but then of course she's also not likely to find him because she's not a faithful worshiper of the Lord. She doesn't go to the temple. She doesn't disgrace the temple with her presence, and so she's not likely to find him because she doesn't know he's there, and she's never going to go to the place where he's hiding. And so... King Joash is in hiding for those six years. But now at the end of the six years, as we come into the seventh year, things are about to change and to change radically. This reminds me, we might say that Judah is like Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Narnia is under the power of Jadis, the White Witch. And Lewis describes Narnia in that time as being always winter, never Christmas. I'm a firm proponent. There are people who would like to move Halloween to always be the last Saturday in October. I don't really care when Halloween is. I think we should move Christmas. Because I think it's borderline cruel that Christmas comes at the beginning of winter. You get down with Christmas, you take the tree down, the presents are all gone, the tinsel comes down, the Christmas carols come off the radio, and you're just left staring at four months of winter with no hope. That's kind of like... Judah here, you have winter, always winter, with no hope in sight. Cruelty and paganism reign, and there is no Savior to be seen. There is no hope in sight. But just because there is no hope in sight does not mean that there is no hope. Because hidden, deep in the heart of Jehoiada, the high priest, hidden in his heart is the warm seeds of spring. He has a plan He knows of little King Joash who is hidden in the side room of the temple and who grows older by the day and he has this plan which he is ready to hatch one day to place him on the throne and to remove Athaliah. And as we come into verse 4, we see that the time for the hatching of this plan has finally come. And so as we move into verse 4 and look rather through about verse 11, we see that Jehoiada, the high priest, begins to share his plan. He, he calls together these commanders of troops, these temple guards, and he tells them what's going to happen. And he brings out the king's son. Can you just imagine being among these commanders of the troops? You have no idea that any of David's sons are still alive. And all of a sudden, out walks a seven-year-old boy And the high priest says, he's been hiding right here in the temple for six years. By the way, guard him with your lives. And so they go along with the plan. They seem very willing to get rid of Athaliah, as do the rest of the people of Judah at the same time. But there's an important detail that we should be very careful that we don't miss. And the detail comes with the weapons which are given to the soldiers. Jehoiada brings out the spears and shields that had belonged to King David. Now, why? It's not as though these men would have needed weapons. They were soldiers. They would have come with their own weapons already. But this is a symbolic act. If these men are going to put one of David's sons on David's throne, they're going to do it with David's weapons. And what this, what this tips us off to is that this is not just a military coup or religious coup to put a different king on a throne. 
But this is an act of faith. It's an act of faith in God's promise, God's promise which he had made to David. So now all the soldiers are present. They're armed and they're ready, and then Jehoiada moves into action, and the action surrounds verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me again. Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! The whole story, all of 2 Kings 11, revolves around verse 12. And it is a passage, it is a verse of action. Just look at all the verbs packed into just that, that one little verse that Jehoiada brings out Joash, crowns Joash, presents Joash with a copy of the covenant, proclaims Joash as king. The people anoint Joash before proclaiming and celebrating and shouting, long live the king. There's all kinds of action just here in one verse, and this one verse probably covers maybe an, an hour or two in time. Now, now think about this. Six years of no action. Six years. They don't even know there is a king. Six years of waiting. Six years of things seeming to be hopeless, and all of a sudden, boom, here's a whole bunch of action just in the course of an hour. Isn't this how God so often works? The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, not for six years, for 400 years. And then the Lord brings Moses and ten plagues and the parting of the sea in just the span of a short while. Or after the end of the Old Testament, when the last of the prophets had been removed from the scene. There's hundreds of years, and then boom, angels making their announcements and shepherds coming to visit, and a star which leads the way to where the king who has been born is in Herod's slaughter and flights to Egypt. All of it after hundreds of years of waiting, and then 30 more years of waiting. Shepherds and angels and wise men, and then years and years and years of silence before Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes upon Him in power and He goes out in the wilderness to be tempted and He comes back and He's preaching the good news of the kingdom, raising the dead and feeding the thousands and making those who can't walk to walk and can't hear to hear and can't see to see. So often, God bides His time for the right time and then makes His move. Is it any different in our own time? As we wait, as we wait like they waited for a king, for the king. And just as he came then, so too we trust by faith that he comes again. And verse 12 is, is, an, is a major event. It's the coming into sight of the promise of God which had been hidden. And it's a renewal of the land. It's like when the snow melts at the end of winter and the buds come on the trees for the first time and you begin to see the hope of summer. When this seven-year-old boy is brought out into the temple, there is hope which had been hidden for so long which now comes to light. And the hope is in the form of this seven-year-old boy. But do you notice that in the whole of the chapter, there's not one action ascribed to Joash, the king. Everything is done to him. 
not by him. That he is brought out, that he is seated on a throne, that he is crowned, that he is given a a copy of the covenant, that he is anointed, that he is proclaimed. The people clap their hands. But Joash does none of these things. Joash has all of this done to him. The main actor in the passage is not the king. The main actor in the passage is the high priest. The high priest, Jehoiada, does everything. Jehoiada is a man of motion. For all these six years, he's kept the faith. Now, mind you, Jehoiada had an advantage because he knew that there was the king's son hidden in the temple. He, he knew that there was still hope somewhere. But even still, hope in a young boy, hope in a four-year-old, in a five-year-old, Hope that somehow he, a high priest, would be able to remove a vicious, murderous, tyrant queen with very good connections from a throne and replace her with a child. It's it's faith. Yet for six years he waits. He waits until the right time. And now the right time has come. Jehoiada puts his faith to work. That's what Jehoiada has, doesn't he? He has a faith that works. He has the kind of faith, true faith, that James describes. If you were with us a couple years ago when we looked through the letter of James, we, we might say that Jehoiada has a faith that moves. He's able to put his money where his mouth is, but really more than that, he's willing to put his life on the line for what he believes. And so he has the audacity with just a few hundred troops to take a seven-year-old boy and put a crown on his head within hearing distance of the palace of the queen who had had the power and the audacity to put all the rest of her grandsons to death. That's faith. But we should take note of a detail here as well. That just as soon as Jehoiada had put the crown on Joash's head, he hands him something. He gives him the copy, a copy of the covenant. And it's likely that what he hands him is a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Or at the very least, a chapter 17 of the book of Deuteronomy, which tells the king what he should do and what he shouldn't do. But either way, the point is very plain. And the point is very clear. Joash is king. But the Lord reigns. Joash has authority. He absolutely has authority. The kings of Israel had authority. The kings of Judah had authority. But it was a delegated authority. They were kings. But they weren't absolute kings. They were still servants of God who was the true king of Judah. And this practice of having kings who recognize that there is a higher authority than themselves was adopted by many Christianized nations. Just one example would be Great Britain, which is largely de-Christianized now. But, but when the, the kings, or in this case, most recent case, the queen comes to sit on the throne, they take oaths. And one of the oaths that Queen Elizabeth took on her coronation a very long time ago now was this. She was asked, Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? 
Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Joash is king, but the Lord is the king of Judah. Joash serves only at the pleasure of God. And then Joash is anointed. He's set apart for the service of the Lord. And then the people proclaim him as king, and they shout, Long live the king. And what do you see from the beginning to the end of the whole scene? Everything is God-focused. That the high priest of God places the crown, David's crown, onto David's son's head according to the covenant promise which God had given to David. And then the king receives God's covenant law. He's anointed for God's service. And he's proclaimed by God's people that he is the king of God's people. And the whole thing is God-centered. It doesn't revolve around Joash. He doesn't do anything. The, the point the author labors to make by what he doesn't include is that the point isn't Joash. The point is God. God has come to lead His people once again. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It, doesn't, it can't stop there. You can't just have a seven-year-old boy wearing a crown standing in the temple. Now he has to take action. And so as you move into the next few verses, verses 13-16, to 16, you see that, that God's enemies, if, if God's king is going to be king, God's enemies have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with very swiftly. So the first enemy to be dealt with is Athaliah. And Athaliah is in the palace, the palace being just a short distance from the temple, and she hears all the commotion. And you can think, oh, I wonder what she was thinking. I didn't authorize a parade today. I didn't know there was any religious holiday going on today. I wonder what all the noise is about. And so she goes out of the temple to go and see what all the chaos is about. And when she gets there, she stops dead in her tracks because right next to one of the pillars of the temple, remember Solomon had those pillars named Jachin and Boaz, right next to one of the pillars of the temple, there's this little seven-year-old boy with a crown and the people are saying long live the king and she's terrified and she tears her robes and she shrieks treason treason what a hypocrite she killed all the king's sons her own grandsons that she might sit on a throne that didn't belong to her and she has the audacity to cry treason Jehoiada says put her to death but not in the temple we don't want her disgusting blood defiling this place and so they catch her, and they put her to death where the horses enter the palace. She's put to death in the place of horses, just like her mother Jezebel had been trampled by horses before her. But Athaliah wasn't the only enemy who needed to be dealt with, but then Jehoiada takes the people and the king, and he makes a covenant with them that the Lord is going to be their God. And then he makes the covenant between the people and the king themselves. And then after this covenanting has been done, what do they do? But they go out to the temple of Baal and they tear it down. And they go and they tear down the altars. And they tear down all the idols. And they get rid of everything. And then what do they do? They find the high priest of Baal and they put him to death as well. It's been a very bad decade for Baal. First, he's ousted from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now his temple is torn down in the southern kingdom of Judah. But what do you see here? You see that the antichrists have been destroyed. Baal is the anti-god. His temple is torn down. The Lord's temple stands. Athaliah is the anti-queen. 
She's dead, but God's king is alive. And Matan is the Antichrist priest. He's dead, but Jehoiada, the Lord's high priest, is alive. The victory is, again, from front to back, the Lord's. And the passage ends very fittingly with a couple of notes. The first, it says, and the city was quiet. Joash is king. Athaliah is dead. Baal's temple is gone. God's people finally have peace. And then things are as they should be. Final words, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Remember, Athaliah has no intro and no outro. All the right-sitting kings of Judah have an introduction and they have a little epitaph at the end. Athaliah receives neither, but Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. The author tells us, finally, the right king sits on David's throne again. Things are, at least for the time being, as they should be. What do you make of this? First thing is you look at Jehoiada and you see a hero. You see one man who kept the faith. And we should look at Jehoiada and recognize that we would be fools to doubt the influence of one faithful, persevering, God-fearing person. Now, oftentimes we might see ourselves as being against the world. And Jehoiada was certainly one man, it seemed, against the world. But Jesus says this in John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Isn't that the case with Jehoiada? We should never underestimate the influence of just one persevering, godly person. I've been reading in the, the life and times of Martin Lloyd-Jones lately in Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great Welsh preacher in the last century, and then he moved to London and very influential. Anyways, Lloyd-Jones came into his pastorate on the, on the heels of a great revival in Wales. And Wales had been a rather spiritually dark place, but the Lord's Spirit moves in power, and churches are grown and revitalized, and the Gospel is preached in power for quite some time. But as revivals come, revivals oftentimes go, and so it was in Wales. And again, liberalism crept into the churches, and false teaching crept into the churches, and the people were fed Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they were fed garbage, spiritual junk food. But the Gospel was still present, and where was the Gospel present? It was present in the old men and the old women who led Bible studies. Old men and old women who had been converted in the revival. And even though their pastors were false teachers, they still trusted God's Word. And they taught the Gospel. That even in those churches with bad pastors, there were still people of God present because they faithfully persevered and labored for the sake of the Lord. But then secondly, we would, we would be missing something great if we missed the connection between Joash and Jesus. Joash is God's king. Jesus is certainly God's king. And all there, there are all kinds of similarities between Joash and Jesus. As we looked last week, both kings are protected from tyrants in their infancy and, and saved from death, even while many others were not saved from death. But then we see that, that both are anointed. Here, Joash is anointed as he becomes king. But Jesus is anointed as well. In, in Psalm 2, 
We read about the Lord's Messiah who was going to come and the Lord's anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. The Lord's anointed one who's going to come. And, and in Psalm 2, we read that the Lord said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But then, what do we see after that? When we come to Jesus' baptism, Jesus goes into the water. John protests. Jesus says, Go ahead. When Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the voice of the Lord says, You are my beloved son. The Joash is anointed, and Jesus is anointed as well, and they both receive a covenant. Joash receives the words from Deuteronomy. Jesus receives a covenant as well. In Psalm 110, another passage which speaks about the coming Messiah, what he will do, God speaks to the Messiah and says to him, The Lord says to my Lord, David writes, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Christ receives a promise. The Anointed One receives a promise. Jesus applies that to Himself. We read in Matthew 22, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? They said to Him, The son of David. And they were right, but not all the way. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. David, in Psalm 110, said that there was a greater king who was coming. A king who would receive a promise of unconditional, ultimate victory over all of his enemies. And Jesus says that he is that king. And that he received that covenant promise from God. And Jesus, like Joash, is crowned as king. And when he ascends into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God on heaven's throne. We read of that in a passage we read to begin our service from time to time. Hebrews 12, Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But one of the most triumphal parts of 2 Kings 11 for me is how quickly the people latch on to their rightful king. Athaliah is dispatched with and the people of the land shout, Long live the king! About a seven-year-old boy. What joy. All the people announce that this is their king. And so too, every person will announce that Jesus is king. We read that finally from Philippians 2, verses 9-11. to Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And as you come to the end of the Scriptures in Revelation 19, we see that Jesus has written on his thigh and on his robe, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If you look at 2 Kings 11, there is no doubt who is the rightful king. Joash is clearly the rightful king. 
He's crowned. He's protected. He's anointed. He's covenanted. He's proclaimed. But for the one who reads the Scriptures, there can be no doubt that as Joash was the rightful king, so Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The question remains, if every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the question is not whether your tongue will confess it. The question is when your tongue will confess it. And whether that will be now or whether it will be the day when the Lord kicks your knees from behind you, makes you bow on your knees, and makes you say it on the day of judgment. Because God will conquer all of his enemies. And he will subdue all of his people. I really appreciate what the Westminster Shorter Catechism has to say about Jesus being our king. Question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Conquering all of his enemies. You know, there was only room for one person on David's throne. It's a one-seater throne, not a two-seater throne. And if Joash was going to be on the throne, then Athaliah had to be off of it. And if Joash was going to be king, then Athaliah could no longer fancy herself to be a queen. And if the Lord was going to be king of Judah, then Baal had to be out of the picture. There's only room for one king, and there's only room for one God. And if there was going to be Joash and the Lord, then Athaliah and Baal had to be defeated and destroyed. God conquers his enemy, and he subdues his own people again. But the Christian faces the same issue. There can only be one king, and there can only be one God. Jesus says very plainly this very thing, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Joash was wise. Wise to know that Athaliah had to be put to death. Wise to know that the temple of Baal had to be torn down. Wise to know that his wicked counterpart, Matan, had to be put to death as well. That every pretender needed to be done away with. That every enemy of the Lord had to be dealt with swiftly. So different for us. There's only room for one king. And there's only room for one God. And Jesus is both. When Thomas, in this glorious scene, when Thomas, who gets a bad rap for being the doubter, but makes one of the most beautiful professions of faith ever found in the Scriptures, when Thomas meets the Lord and he puts his finger in the holes in his hands and he puts his hand in his side, he says, My Lord and my God. Christ is both our Lord, our King, and our God. And if we're going to have Him as King and God, then all pretenders to His throne and His titles must be dealt with. It's very easy to deal with the, to deal with the pretenders to God's throne and to Joash's throne in Jehoiada's day. At least it was easy because you knew who they were. 
Athaliah shrieking treason, treason, it's very easy to see that she's an enemy. No, there was no secret about that. And Baal's temple, pretty obvious to see that if, if Baal's temple is there, then Baal is being worshipped and the Lord is not. So, so you, you know very easily Athaliah has to go and Matan has to go and Baal has to go. That's easy. What's not so easy is seeing what in our lives has to go. Because our hearts are deceitful above all things. And what it is in our lives that competes with Christ for kingship, what it is in our lives that competes with the Lord for lordship, what it is in our life that competes with God for our worship can oftentimes be very difficult to see. And so I suspect that many of us, probably most of us, are long overdue for a thorough search of our heart for the idols that would tear our allegiance away from God. But when that search is had and when they are found, it must be dealt with swiftly. There are many idols. There are many things that would take us away from Christ. Many things. Scripture speaks often, as Jesus did, about money and greed. And since there is so much money in our own land, perhaps it is even more dangerous to us than it was to the people in Jesus' day. The Proverbs speak alarmingly often about the dangers of adultery and lust. And there are sins, gossip and slander, frittering away time, self-aggrandizement, spiritual laziness, cold-heartedness, self-pity, or perhaps for some of us just being cranky jerks who refuse to have the joy of the Lord and to celebrate the gospel. There can be anything that would rob us of Christ. Any number of things which could take away our allegiance to Christ. Whatever it is, must be dealt with. But you know, the most often, the most common enemy of Christ in our lives is so often us. So often the thing that would move Christ off the throne of our heart, so to speak, is us. Our desire for advancement or comfort or our dreams. Follow your dreams. We love that. Disney tells us we should love that. But so often, following your dreams is just a nice way of saying chasing after your idols. Don't follow your dreams. Follow Christ. Don't chase after the desires of your heart. Chase after the desires of God's heart. Idols, false gods, false kings, they're everywhere. But there is only one true king. There's only one true God. Christ is king. And the Lord is God. And if we've learned anything from 2 Kings 11, it should be simply this. That we ought to be very sure that he's our king and our God. And better now than later. Let's pray. God, we would have you as our king. We would have Christ as our king. And we would have you as our God to the exclusion of all others. So we pray that you would give us the grace, as painful as it may be, that you would give us the grace to examine our hearts, to see what it is that challenges you for our allegiance, for our dedication. 
And as your son said that it's better to have a hand cut off and to enter the kingdom with one hand than to be thrown into the fire, that you would, be, you would cause us to be willing to cast away everything that would hinder us from coming into the kingdom. Bowing our knee. We know, Lord, that one day every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord to your glory. We do not want to wait until our knees are swept out from underneath us. We are forced to them, and our mouths are made to say it unwillingly. Lord, we want to say it now with joy and in hope. Give us the faith of Jehoiada that one day, that one day we see the king, the right king, on the throne. And as there was peace in his day with the right king on the throne, so God, give us the hope of perfect peace when we see Christ, our king, on his throne. Amen.